True Spirituality, Part 11, Healing of the Total Person. The Bible makes the possibility of miracles very clear. And from a purely philosophical perspective, if a being such as the God of the Bible exists, then it is logically consistent to then believe that he can move within the physical realm in ways that are beyond what is expected or normally occurs. Does our own personal experience confirm this? Some among us, perhaps even you listening, claim to have actually witnessed or experienced firsthand something miraculous such as someone being healed, either physically or psychologically, or an amazing deliverance from danger or certain catastrophe. But it's important to point out that both scripture and experience show that while sometimes God might move in such a way, this is decidedly not the norm. Whether or not God answers prayers for what we would consider spectacular interventions, this is not always a matter of faith or the lack of faith on our part, nor is it an indicator that God is deficient in power, knowledge, or goodness, since God is personal and has his own purposes. It is exactly the same thing with psychological healing. A person may be healed psychologically, but that does not mean he will be psychologically perfect the rest of his life. Think of Lazarus, the close friend of Jesus whom he raised from the dead, as recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 11. Afterward, he surely had physical sickness. He may have had psychological depression. And we must remember that eventually he died again. The results of the fall continue until the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is true not only in the psychological area, of course, it is true in all the relationships of life. All of us have known married couples who refuse to have what they can have because they may have set for themselves a false standard of what a superior marriage is supposed to be. They have set up some overly romanticized view, and if their marriage does not measure up to these standards, things can start to unravel. They must have the ideal love affair of the century, and anything less is just so unexciting, so unfulfilling. Therefore, they decide to look elsewhere, and the inevitable then occurs as the marriage is put under a tremendous amount of strain. Since the fall, everything is subject to decay and brokenness. And apart from the resurrection applied to our lives, we are caught up in it. So we are waiting. We wait for the perfect application of the finished work of Christ for the whole of man. We wait for this, but on this side of the fall and before Christ comes, we must not insist on perfection or nothing, or we will end up with the nothing. And this is as true in the area of psychological problems as it is in all other areas of life. Having said that, let us add that we are not to go to the other extreme and expect less than to act in the circle of the being God made man to be, that is, in his own image, rational and moral. We have been made in the circle of creation in the image of God, not only moral, but rational. As a Christian begins to deal with psychological problems, he must do so in the realization of who he is. He is made in the image of God. This being so, again, he is rational and moral. Thus, there will be a conscious and responsible behavior. 
The Christian must not think he can simply trigger mechanical reflexes within himself and others so that all will be well. The basic psychological problem is trying to be what we are not and trying to carry what we cannot carry. Most of all, the basic problem is not being willing to be the creatures we are before the Creator. Imagine that you meet one of the strongest figures from classical mythology, Atlas, carrying the entire world on his shoulder, or a superhero from today's fiction, say Superman carrying an aircraft carrier. He sees you coming and says, here, you carry the planet, or the USS Enterprise for a while. You accept the invitation, and you get squashed. You cannot carry what you have been handed. The psychological parallel is that man is trying to be the center of the universe and refuses to be the creature he is. He is trying to carry something too heavy to bear and gets smashed. There's nothing complicated about it. He is crushed in trying to bear what no one other than God himself can bear because only God is infinite, perfect, and capable of bearing such a massive burden. This can come in various ways. When you pump too much air into a weak tire, it will blow out. The reason for this is the excessive pressure, but the actual break comes at the point of the weakness in the tire. Since the fall, we all have points of weakness. With some of us, it tends to be physical. With some, it tends to be psychological or emotional. If we carry what we cannot, the blowout will come and it will come at the place of our inherent weakness. The central overwhelming pressure is that of needing to be the integration point of all things because we are not willing to be the creatures we are. We refuse to acknowledge the existence of God, or even though acknowledging his existence intellectually, in practice we refuse to bow before him in the midst of our moment-by-moment lives. The doctrines of Christianity speak first in rational answers and then in practice to the psychological results of man's condition since the fall. There is true psychological healing available from within the total structure of Christian belief. The Christian gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has come as one of us to save us, is the answer not only theoretically, but also in practice within the unity of the Bible's teaching and specifically within the unity of the creature-creator and redeemed-redeemer relationship. Jesus Christ as the Redeemer-Savior. Within the totality of the Bible's teaching, there is the possibility not only of theoretical psychology, but also of a practical psychology. Let's examine this. One of the results of man's rebellion against the God who is there is fear, which comes in many forms. Some psychologists take the approach similar to that outlined by Carl Jung, which we have referenced in earlier episodes of this series, and meet the fear by telling the patient to somehow act as if God were there. They might not say it that plainly, but this is the spirit of his idea, which he spelled out during his last interview prior to his death, by defining God as, and I quote, Whatever cuts across my will outside of myself or whatever wells up from the collective unconscious within myself, unquote. 
His advice was to call it God and give in to Him. In other words, it is acting as if. Of course, very often the words God and Him aren't referenced, but the concept of drawing strength and empowerment from something not you or sourced from somewhere outside of you, perhaps even transcendent, remains. But God really is there. He is not just the father image projected, but the Christian system begins with the comprehension and declaration of God's existence as father. Consequently, there need never be a fear of the impersonal or the implications associated with our existence in a vast, cold, uncaring universe. But without God, human beings are reduced to a stream of energy particles and matter. Not thinking too deeply about or isolating your mind from this conclusion doesn't change the fact that the implications of such a view lead to a faceless humanity. We are not persons, but machines whose delusions of grandeur are blessed mirages or versions of an augmented reality we move around in. But the more one reflects deeply about this, the more one realizes that apart from a personal cause like the creator God of the Bible, humanity is faceless and one has a right to fear the impersonal and being nothing more than just a machine, which can lead to fearing non-being, death. But for Christians, there never needs to be a fear of the impersonal or even non-being since the personal infinite God is not only there, but has drawn us into relationship with him as an adopted and much-loved child. In living in the light of this doctrine, the most basic form of fear dissolves away. It's similar to when a Christian parent says to the little child who is afraid to be left alone in her room at night in the dark. The parent says, You don't have to be afraid because God is here. God is with you. This is a profound truth, and it's not just for children. One of the most glorious aspects of the Christian faith is how the little and most simple of things can be thought of and applied in the most profound ways. Let's circle back to the fear of non-being, which at first sounds odd. Pretty sure you're not going to see that show up in some top 10 list of fears. Perhaps it's best to refer to it as something that resonates deep within the subconscious. Someone who rejects the idea of a personal creator like the God of the Bible has no idea where he came from and not having any answer to being in the sense of why anything and anyone exists is forced into a reality that everything emerged in the sequence of chance or randomness. And as we have seen, this provides no answer explaining why it is we sense ourselves to be and then live as if we are persons who can want, love, hate, recognize beauty and morality, and change our minds in order to improve ourselves and the world around us. But for the believer, the total system of unified Christian teaching is that I have been created by an infinite personal God created truly outside of himself. So I know who I am in my being, a person bearing the image of God, and therefore my existence is validated on a deeply personal level as opposed to chance or randomness. 
And when it comes to perhaps the greatest of fears, the Christian perspective provides the obvious solution. To Christians, there is a continuity of life on a straight horizontal line from this life on into the world to come. The moment we trusted Christ, which Jesus and the apostles taught as resulting in a spiritual rebirth, being born again, death no longer represents a chasm, but a passing from one life to the next glorious phase. All this said, because of the fall, Christians are still vulnerable to tremendous psychological disturbance, whether it is short-term or even more prolonged. And what we should do in these cases is help each other to act upon the Bible's teaching. We must talk to, pray for, and with one another and help each other to think in the light of the truth of the total unified Christian system. This informs us what and who we are and that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we are connected to God by the Holy Spirit and therefore have access to what we need to make it through the day or even just the next hour in those times when things are incredibly intense. And yes, the Bible teaches very plainly that even those who have trusted Christ, experienced this new birth, and have the very Spirit of God living within them are still going to endure times in this life that bring us to our knees. In fact, one of the benefits, yes, benefits, of getting knocked down is that it is from that humbled position that we are most reliant upon and receptive to God, which leads to strength that can only come from such a posture. The Apostle Paul captures this thought in one of his letters recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, as he recounts having prayed that the Lord would take away or heal him of a malady he referred to as a thorn in his flesh. He writes of God's answer. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's important to note that Christian teaching doesn't exalt weakness for weakness's sake, but provides a different lens through which to view the frailty of the human condition and even repurposes our struggles as the means to a heightened expression of our humanity as those trusting our Father in heaven to enable us to endure and even grow in the midst of the inevitable challenges in all their various forms. Let's apply this to the psychological disturbances that manifest so prominently in our relationships with other people. It is often the case that feelings of inferiority and superiority are at the root of the conflict and tension we often experience due to the fact that we are social creatures. Many of us move back and forth between superiority and inferiority, almost like the swing of a pendulum. 
However, for the Christian acting on the unified Christian teaching, my status and validity do not rest upon relative relationships to other people and what they think of me, but are found in my relationship with the God who is there. And I know how he thinks of me since Christ proved it on the cross. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. Christianity teaches the reality of me being a creature who is limited and finite and no better than others. I know who I am. I am made in the image of God, my creator. I see myself in the light of having been created by God and in the light of the true historic fall of our ancestors. So I understand that this is what I am and all other people are. This is an entirely different starting point than what is offered by a worldview that denies the existence of God. So let's consider how this takes shape in not just my beliefs about the nature of reality, but how I think within and live out that reality. As a Christian, instead of putting myself in practice at the center of the universe, I must do something else. This is not only right, and the failure to do so is not only sin, but it is important for me personally in this life. I must think after God and I must will after God. I must subordinate my thinking, desires, and life patterns after the God who is there. To think after God as he has revealed himself in his creation, and especially as he has revealed himself in the Bible, is to have an integrated answer to life, both intellectually and in practice. On any other basis, I do not have this. When I think about and reference God, I can have intellectual integration. All things about myself and the world I inhabit come together to form a unified truth. No longer do I need to hide from the facts that I wish were not true and dare not face. So we see that the integration of the whole man in thinking, being, and personality comes as I seek after God and set my heart on following the ways taught and exemplified by Christ and the apostles. Once, when Jesus was teaching on the things we are prone to worry about, he said, and this is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The Apostle Paul expands upon this teaching in his letter to the Philippians when he writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13. There is only one integration point that is enough, and that is God himself. Nothing else works, whether things, activities, or even relationships with other people. Anything but the creator of the universe is a false integration point, 
since I am a creature created by God to love him with all my heart, soul, and mind. Once again, Christians will still have struggles on this front as even those who have trusted Christ and are trying to walk it out each day can give in to the pursuit of false integration points that are in themselves not something inherently wrong or distasteful. Intellectual pursuits are a good example. Intellectual pursuits can be to the glory of God, but the danger can be when it becomes not a pursuit of or search for truth, but a game. Christians are to believe that Christianity does have intellectual answers and that every man deserves an honest answer for an honest question, but this is not to be the final integration point. The integration point is God himself. It is possible for the Christian to continue placing more intellectual questions between them and the reality of communion with God. That is a mistake. God is a person, not just a concept or an abstraction. He can be talked to and experienced. It's important to not fall into making even right doctrine and theology a false integration point in the sense of knowing more about God than actually knowing Him. Of course, there are other common traps for this as well. Nothing wrong with pursuing a livelihood, career, or scholastic achievement with full rigor. This is not inherently wrong or sinful, but it is in making a good thing into an ultimate thing, which is precisely what idolatry is, that it becomes problematic. And since the fall, we are prone to be idol-making machines and therefore have to be conscious of keeping our main focus, our primary reference or integration point, God. To live moment by moment through faith on the basis of the blood of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit is the only truly integrated way to live. This is the only way to be at rest with myself, for only in this way am I not trying to carry what I cannot. To do otherwise is to jettison my resting place, which is the substantial psychological advantage I, as a Christian, can have in this present life. It's also important to acknowledge that often we are afraid to offer ourselves completely to God for fear of what will happen. What will this require of me? What will I have to give up? What sacrifices will I be called upon to make? It can be scary to abandon the self and the self's version of what is the best life possible in favor of granting another complete authority to command you, isn't it? But fear falls to the ground when we see before whom we are standing. We are standing in a living relationship with a living God who loves us and has shown his love for us to such an extent that Jesus died on the cross. Fear falls and we have the courage to give ourselves over to him for his use without being afraid when we see we are not giving ourselves into the teeth of an impersonal situation or to one who has an unkind intention toward us. We are offering ourselves before the God who loves us, and he is not a monster, but our Heavenly Father. 
As I bow in my will in practice in this present life, it ends with communion with God as Abba, Papa, Father. Communion with God requires bowing in the area of knowledge, but communion with God also requires bowing in my will in these areas we have studied in this series. We are justified before God and made fit for adoption into his family if we have accepted Christ as Savior. But present communion with God requires continual bowing in both the intellect and the will. Without bowing in the intellect, in thinking after God, without acting upon the finished work of Christ in my present life, and without bowing in the will in practice as the waves of the present life break over me, there is no sufficient communion with God. Without these things, I am not in my place as the creature in a fallen and abnormal world. But in bowing before the God who was there by accepting his Son as Savior and Lord, I am reborn as the person I was meant to be, which is a child of God created to know him, love him, and follow his plans for living. This his Spirit who dwells within me empowers me to do as I submit to him moment by moment. This is the Christian life. This is true spirituality.